Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Jason Van Thiel. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Jason is the Director of Research for Helios. He's an expert in the fields of investment management, wealth management, and fintech. So Jason, that's kind of where you know I wanted to spend the majority of my time is what's happening within the wealth management industry in general, like thematically. And can you talk about the firm, the services you provide, and what type of platform it is? Yeah, we've seen with the advancement of technology over the last, you know, five, 10, even 15 years, when you go back to when it kind of started, it's allowed advisors to do a lot more, but it's also had the impact of their clients expecting a lot more from their advisor. So where we kind of come in and where we slot into an advisor practice to you effectively outsource the asset management portion of their practice while they still retain discretion and ownership. So it's, you know, it's different than your prototypical TAMP where, you know, they might not really be involved in the day-to-day. In kind of our world, technology and the trading technology has gotten so good that it's very easy for them to continue to own their asset management program while outsourcing a lot of the content research and everything that really drives how they manage their asset management program. So that's where really we come in and slot in. And, and this goes to the point that you hear a lot of commentary within the space of, Many financial advisors are really good relationship people, like 
terrific at sales, marketing, and building these deep relationships with their clientele, they're not always the best investment managers, right? And and so you all come in and you provide kind of a white-labeled back office solution for them so they can focus on where they excel, but also still get top of the line investment management. Is that generally right? Exactly. We really like to talk about, you know, advisors being able to focus on like their next best action, you know, the how can you spend an extra hour a day, an extra couple hours a week? Um, and that's, you know, relationship management, retaining clients, talking to prospects, et cetera. And there are those advisors that want to be asset managers. And, you know, that's not really our target market. But for those that want to kind of grow their and scale their practice by focusing on the client, that's where we really come in and be a value add. And you use this term insource CIO, which I'd never heard before. Could you maybe tease that apart a little bit for us? Yeah, we're, we're we're trying to you know kind of wedge ourselves in uh, kind of a new category, if you will. Where as you know everyone knows an outsourced CIO or the OCIO market, and that landscape's been growing considerably for the last several years now. But that's really kind of disassociation, or you don't really have ownership over the end kind of intellectual property or the decision making. So we're very different than that. We want to be you know we kind of switched it to insourced where. The advisor still owns the discretion, the ownership over how those work. And we kind of come in and do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and work with them to design an asset management program that really fits with their practice and their client base. And you used the term before and I should have had you define it. Could you discuss what TAMP is? Yeah, so that's the TAMP stands for a turnkey asset management platform or program. And they kind of sit as almost like a sub-advisor to financial advisors, and they run a lot of the operation of the account opening, billing, performance reporting. But then, you know, technology's gotten so much easier to use than it was 10, 15 years ago that not all advisors need to kind of that full suite of stuff. So we kind of take in a section of that for their practice. And that was one of the areas that I wanted to discuss. Technology has just completely changed the landscape for financial advisory, wealth management, asset management, et cetera. Could you maybe discuss kind of the the trends that you've seen play out over your career within that world and, and how it has impacted the financial advisors, but also the end user clients themselves? There's been a lot of big kind of macro shifts away from or from, you know, the old kind of stockbroker, kind of peer broker dealer world into more fee-only, holistic financial planning, et cetera. So the, like, the relationship and how advisors work with their clients, I think, has fundamentally changed over my career. And technology has been an enablement to that. Frankly, COVID's been an enablement to that, where more people are, are accepting of remote-type environments. So now you might have been constrained to call it a 50-mile radius from your clients. Now it's really nationwide. And like I mentioned before, the technology's gotten so good that it gives advisors kind of the arsenal and the tool belt to do more, but that also comes at the cost of now I need to do more for my clients because the guy down the street's doing more for their clients. Um, so how do I do that in a scalable way that you know maintains my profitability as a firm, but also allows me to engage with those clients at a deep level? But you know I'm not an expert in asset management. I'm not an expert in estate planning, et cetera. So I think the whole role, like 15 years ago today, has really fundamentally changed. And if you were to kind of put your crystal ball hat on, where do you think the most exciting, biggest changes are coming in the next five or 10 years using technology as a lens through which to look to the future? I think a lot of those aspects of you know relationship management and 
the products and services they could offer or the solutions that they can offer from the asset management side. And as you know, that's my bias. I'm focusing on, on that side is really going to change. You know, you had, you know, the revolution of mutual funds to ETFs and separately managed accounts to sleeving technology. And now you're getting direct indexing and the ability to really customize and personalize a portfolio solution to an individual client household or, or, you know, relationship really, but that's going to go to the next level. It's like, okay, now I can do all these things. May I have room to do, you know, my clients have concentrated stock holdings. How do I manipulate my portfolio to account for that? Or they have real estate holdings, a multifamily apartment building. How do I manipulate and get the overall end experience for that, for that investor to be the best it can be? Because I think that's what it's, our industry has done poorly on to date. I think you know there's a lot of talk on what the appeal of a given investment strategy is, but it's not like that end experience where you know those bumps in the road as market dislocations happen. How does the advisor kind of work with their client to to navigate those troubled waters? There's been a lot of kind of coaching narratives, but I think that that kind of tool set for the advisors is really going to get to the next level with the advent of of kind of more relationship technology and the ability to customize the individual relationship that they have with each other. And you referenced that advisors are being asked to do more and more. And I completely agree. Is that a product of this technology leveraged ability to access different investments and then the clients becoming more knowledgeable? And so they've just ramped up expectations across the board. Back in the day, you could call your stockbroker, you could pick one of a hundred stocks, but now the optionality is just almost unlimited. Is that part of the dynamic that you're seeing play out? Yeah, I think with more information flowing through, be it Twitter, blogs, or just you know the overall news media, people are w- aware of more that's out there. So you saw kind of estate planning be that next leg, concentrated stock holdings, which I mentioned. I think the more things go in there, there's just a natural competitive race for those dollars. And I think advisors and their shops realize if we can have a higher share of wallet, you know, that's going to drive our business performance and just deepen our relationship. So it's a win-win. So how do we do more of that? And it's just kind of an arms race at this point. And are you an arms race in a good way? Do you think ultimately the client and the, and the end user will benefit from this trend? I think so. I think I'll, I'll asterisk that as, you know, people can get out over their skis pretty easily. And if they venture off into an area where they haven't done their due diligence or their homework and they're not truly an expert in, or they don't have the resources to truly be an expert in, that's where you're, I think you'll see some risks of just the end investor and client experiences not being what they want to be. But I think with technology as an enablement, if you do that smartly and intelligently, that will for the advisor and the shop that's done their homework lead to better outcomes. Yeah, I like your website for a number of reasons, but but one of them is you have this like the most important thing section. And I think to go back to our conversation where access to information and data, parsing through it is the hardest part of an advisor's job today, just because there's so many data points. Being able to to give a very simplistic, cogent, you know, hey, here's one thing that you just need to pay attention to to the client is super important because it can be just overwhelming. Even just like if you read the journal, the New York Times, forget Twitter and Instagram and everything else and TikTok. How did you guys come up with that? Have you gotten good feedback there? How do you choose what data point to focus on? 
It really comes to you know paying attention to what's been going on in the market. And in our seat, kind of we're tasked with knowing those things and reading the media and you know Bloomberg, the journal, and kind of knowing what's you know hitting the front page, what an end investor might be seeing and might be prompting questions. So we try to be proactive in the sense of giving the people who have relationships with us and our advisors kind of the tool set and talking points they need to be proactive in their communication and not have to say like, let me get back to you on that. We'd like to avoid that as all, at all costs and kind of cut out all those hours that the advisor might be reading the journal or Barron's, et cetera, to just focus on, you know, one or two few things that they need to pay attention to. So there's been a, a trend or a lot of chatter about this baby boomer, financial advisor, whatever the stats are that, you know, is typically a 67 year old man and they're retiring and they may not have great succession planning within the firm. And I heard about it for a long time, but now I'm starting to see it actually play out in individuals and families in different firms. What are you seeing and feeling with that demographic shift? I think at least in part, that's been one of the kind of the fuel on the fire of the aggregator roll up or, you know, kind of whatever term is is being touted around now. There's a lot of Kind of consolidation within the, within the industry and people that didn't have succession planning might be like oh I, you know I would I expected to retire in a couple of years what do I do like it's probably too late to bring on a junior advisor unless they want to extend their kind of working life longer so it becomes attractive to kind of go to one of these roll-ups and they're getting good marks for a while so I think that was kind of one of the big propellers there but it'll be interesting to see how you know, there's there's only so far that that can go, um, and to what extent do these big aggregators become, you know, effectively a wirehouse again um, if they go too far? So it's interesting to see kind of the individual independent RA is still the, one of the fastest growing areas of our industry, but you have these roll ups kind of you know picking off all these practices as their advisors get older. So I think there's going to be a renewed focus on maybe the kind of the younger section of the older section of advisors, if that makes sense of like, okay, like I need to start thinking about this now. Otherwise, you know, I'm, my hand might get forced down the road. And what are your thoughts about private equity within the financial advisory space? That's a, uh, that's, that's a big one. Um, I think as it relates to, you know, fueling some of this aggregation, you know, there is a certain element of economies of scale. There's a big, or not even a certain, there's a big element of economies of scale within this industry in really any silo that you can look at. So these bigger firms might be able to kind of bring in those like-minded advisors, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, five or 10 years, maybe I'll come on the show, you know, 10 years hence, and we'll see kind of what that ended up looking like if advisors are going to want to kind of do the same thing that they did with wirehouses and kind of spin off independent because they see, you know, how easy that might be with how many different service providers and partners that they can kind of come up to. I think RIA in a box is an interesting kind of case study of how that loosened the barriers to people spinning out. I think that's only going to continue. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club podcast for more information and to sign up today. And you've got a background within kind of the, the fintech, but also large financial advisory firms. 
what are the what are the whispers in the hallways at those places about like what the future will hold? You know, I I know there's a lot of chatter about this democratization of access to alternatives. There's this push towards the quote unquote retail investor or mass affluent amongst some of the larger Wall Street firms. How do those big shops think about you know being relevant considering the pace of change within the industry? I think they're put in a tough spot given you know there's a lot of generational change and you know everyone's talking about the wealth transfer of what's going to happen from baby boomers to millennials or Gen Z. But that's always kind of going to be the case. There's always going to be an aging generation that holds probably the bulk of the accumulated assets. But they have a lot of entrenched relationships to their benefit. They're trying to leverage that as much as they can while still trying to move their product forward. But when you have a big client base, making changes to a product is a lot harder and it's a lot slower than if you're a new kind of upcoming disruptor. So I think there's going to be these disruptors pushing the big incumbents to make changes, they're naturally going to go a bit slower, but they have you know that benefit of scale that we talked about earlier, where it's hard to unseat them. I mean, you saw you know Robin Hood kind of come up and was on the radar of all the big players there, but you know it didn't end up playing out exactly how you know some of them thought that they were just going to kind of get into that kind of Henry, the high earner, not rich yet demographic, and they're just kind of going to ride that wave up and sophisticate and kind of move their product to a more sophisticated level. But that's tough. You know, these big incumbents have decades of, of experience in building behind them. So while they don't have the disruptors don't have the same tech debt, um, I think they're realizing how difficult it is to really build out that massive product offering. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. And and I like the the reference to Robinhood. There's something there there, right? But execution was not their forte within the management team, and they got caught up in some larger macro issues. But this concept that there are this 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 that there is this underserved population is not gone unnoticed, and somebody is going to figure out whether it's Goldman, J.P. Morgan, an up and comer, etc. What do you think about kind of interesting things happening within fintech? Are there companies that we should keep an eye on, or just movements within that space that you find compelling right now? I mean, there's a lot. I mean, when you look at the kind of fintech map, it's uh, there's always a few new logos that pop up on there every time it's updated. Um, and it's always interesting to see kind of where the new kind of hot money is flowing and where they, you know, two years ago, where did that come to? Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the startup disruptor process is very difficult. You know, the Robinhood examples, the robos kind of were thought to really going to put kind of a, a a stake in the heart of kind of big financial advisory shops, but that's not how it really panned out. So I think there's can be an oversimplification there. I'm not sure of you know who's going to be that next up and comer. You see a lot of the big asset managers kind of buying every single direct indexing platform that's out there. So it feels like that's becoming table stakes, but there's no kind of standalone direct indexing that's gotten to scale yet. They seem to be gobbled up. But I think that's kind of at least where the lot of the conversations around. I'm not sure if it necessarily has legs yet. Yeah, I was going to ask you about robo advisory in, in particular. Is that additive to the environment that ultimately make financial advisors better and the client experience in from a return perspective better? Or is it just kind of a, a false start and not really being utilized that much? I think the addition of it to our industry has made the industry better. To your point earlier of there's a general underserved 
community within financial services that just haven't had access or didn't have the amount of assets to hit financial advisories minimums. I think that was a step forward there. There's still a lot to do in that aspect, but that was at least a step forward where you can get kind of a smaller dollar amount, serve that you know young professional that were typically kind of priced out of the normal advisory space and give them, you know, at least uh, a modicum of financial planning, asset management, et cetera. So I think it was a step forward, but I still think there's a lot more to do. So now I want to pivot towards more kind of micro market commentary. (laughs) We're recording this in the end of September, 2022. I was commenting on the phone with a colleague earlier today that I don't remember the sentiment ever being this negative, probably since 2008, even with COVID. Just what we're seeing in the headlines, the reaction from the Fed, what we're seeing in the market. You've been in the asset management business since pre-2008. What are you feeling and seeing yourself from an economic sentimentality perspective? I mean, I completely agree. The sentiment out there is arguably probably the worst it's been outside of you know post-Lehman of when there's really been a fracture in kind of the global marketplace. Like we haven't really seen that, but sentiment right now is really terrible. And we've been talking about a recession for several months at this point. So if and when a recession ends up happening, if it happens soon, it'll probably be the most telegraph recession in recent memory, if not of all time. Um, and you see different stats of you know retail option traders going you know extremely bearish. But the old adage and when everyone believes you know something's going to happen typically something else happens so it's there's a lot out there that's kind of scary especially when we look at you know what the pound did over the weekend but those kind of market wisdom or the conventional thought is rarely how it actually plays out so there'll be something that will happen in the coming months that will kind of change the conversation and deviate away from us because if everyone expects you know we're going to go in this massive recession the market's going to sell off more then that gets priced into the market. So there's there's always something that will happen. Um, just who knows what it's going to be. So putting on your in-source CIO hat, what are, what are the what's keeping financial advisors up at night right now? And what are you hearing from FAs about what their world looks like from a market perspective? I think that I mean, with that level of bearish sentiment or negative sentiment that's out there, advisors are hearing that from their clients. But they're also feeling that themselves, just like you know, any one of us that's paying attention to the market or just even seeing headlines on the local news of what the Dow did. So that has an effect. It has an effect on the psyche. And that's where we want to come in and apply, you know, systematic discipline ways of approaching it. So we don't want to have necessarily that qualitative overlay. That's not what we get paid for, of you know, whatever our personal opinion on what the market's going to do. We want to put in kind of standing on the shoulders of, you know, decades of academic research and research put out by by big shops that, you know, kind of serve the the broader good of how to apply, call it trend following or, you know, whatever it might be, using those kind of research topics to kind of stand on the shoulders of and push forward um, for those advisors that work with us and kind of getting to that customized uh, program. So I think it's really hard to remain disciplined in these type of, types of environments but it makes it all the more important to do so because there's so many ways you can kind of get into your own head or let your biases play out and make make bad decisions. So what does the research dictate, you know, from a historical perspective of of the right play here from it could be asset allocation, it could be investment strategy, it could be doing nothing. What's your opinion without giving advice? 
Like, what do you think historically proves out given what we're experiencing right now? Yeah, I mean, if you just look at academic trend following, let's just take kind of a, a narrow look at it. You know, we've seen trends break in a lot of different asset classes throughout this year. That's not a terribly, you know, shocking statement given when we look at, you know, what year to date has been on the S&P 500 or the or the USA. But when you look at that, he's like, okay, like now trends have broken. I might want to have a, a lower a more a lower risk positioning within a portfolio or might want to be more conservative when you see all of those trends break. So that's just kind of one example of a lens that you could look at what global capital markets are telling you and incorporate that information into kind of your risk positioning within a portfolio. What's your best idea from the investment side right now? I don't even think I could say that, <laughs> even if I wanted to. It's that bad, yeah. Yeah. It, it is a confusing time. And I know, you know, personally, it feels like criminal loss of capital is different than volatility, right? We talk about that a lot on the show. And, you know, for the first time in a long time, there, there may be some alternatives to market, right? Bonds actually might start to be a little bit more attractive. They've been in this horrible bear cycle for a long time. So you've got fixed income. Luckily, and I'd be curious to hear what FAs are talking to you about, but you can access direct real estate, different alternatives, private credit through these various platforms or, or folks like myself. Are you feeling and seeing FAs start to leverage some of the optionality that's in the market today? I think there are these types of environments really kind of bubble to the top. The alternative landscape kind of writ large. I think we saw that in 08 specifically with kind of managed futures, et cetera. And when you have dislocations like this, it always brings up like, okay, is there more I could be doing? Or what are my options really for my given client base? And that kind of gets to our point earlier of the democratization of investment management, where you have these other platforms, whether, I mean, there's structured note platforms, there's liquid alt platforms, there's illiquid alt platforms, direct real estate platforms out there now, pretty much every niche to some regard has like a different kind of platform that could be accessible by financial advisors or just your, you know, the normal way that you would go about accessing alts. And it becomes, you know, how can I access them and how does it complement my portfolio? I think one thing that the industry does poorly on is, you know, looping or grouping all alternatives together when at the end of the day for an advisor or their practice, like, okay, what do I want to accomplish by going into the alternative space? Because the alternative space is just, is really wide. There's a lot of diversity of how things happen. Like, do I want an uncorrelated asset stream? Do I want uh, absolute return? Do I want to manage and dampen volatility to my, you know, 60, 40 portfolio? All those things are different outcomes that they should be looking at different areas of the alternative space. But I think with that greater information, with uh, all these platforms and more information out there, that advisors are going to be able to kind of find exactly what they want and have access and better transparency into what those things do. Yeah. I mean, that it's interesting. I heard commentary that in times like this, even though it's might be counterintuitive, it can be oftentimes the the best opportunity to invest in startups and venture capital because these types of environments create people to, you know, start incredible companies typically during a recession or a downturn. So you do have to have that kind of historical lens and knowledge, I think, to make some of these choices. But to your point, how do you maintain 
that discipline and how to FAs leverage your platform, you know, to message correctly to the clients, hey, this is the time to follow through on the plan that we put together five years ago when everything was good and we were drinking margaritas at the beach. Yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of investment up front in those relationships. And you know, when you're doing your quarterly reviews or your initial kind of client onboarding of setting expectations of, you know, here is our approach and philosophy to kind of your assets, your savings at the end of the day. Um, here's how we're going to manage them within kind of this range. We're going to use kind of these different quantitative techniques to manipulate the portfolio over time to try to help achieve your goals. And when environments like this happen and be like, okay, remember when we you know went through that initial kind of education of here's how we are going to act. And here's what the data is showing, and here's how this aligns to what we talked about and what we agreed upon. So it really kind of builds that confidence along the client lifecycle of here's what I said I was going to do, here's what happened, and here's what we did. And what we try to do is be, you know, like I mentioned before, be proactive in providing those communications to our the advisors that work with us so they can have those conversations and more touch bases with their clients in times like this where anxiety is higher, um, they might be getting more inbounds and have those productive conversations. And similar to my business, in times like this, you want to increase communication, transparency, reporting, right? How do you do that at scale? And what is what is best practice, in your opinion, in a time like this where an FA can't call every single one of their clients, you know, if they have a large book of business, but you want to still provide that that touch and feel of being kind of in communication with them constantly. Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, may having a, you know, it's not even a, a terribly sophisticated, but, you know, a somewhat sophisticated communications platform and how you're segmenting your clients. There's some subset of your book that will probably want more frequent touch bases when environments like this happen or kind of dislocations happen. And they want that reassurance that you're paying attention and other clients, you know, that might actually provide more anxiety of like, okay, like my financial advisor is clearly stressed right now. He's like sending me an email every week, whereas before I got one every six months. So you want to be sure to like segment those, your book and, you know, deliver communications that fit with that client segment and, you know, not to be beat a dead horse, but the, that advent of technology allows advisors to do that a lot easier than it was, you know, maintaining a big spreadsheet of all your households and how you want to communicate with them. So I think it's really knowing your book and knowing the clients kind of groupings within your book. Yeah. And and I think it's always better to err on the side of more communication, more information. But to your point, you can now personalize and, and, and segment so that if you know one client likes to have a phone call, then you make sure that you give them a call. If one prefers just to get everything over email. And I think with CRMs and other kind of tools that you can leverage, you can give everyone what they want at this point, as long as you've kind of done the work on the front end and you leverage white label resources like yourself. Yeah, because you can take, you know, bullet points or talking points that we might provide with, you know, some kind of overlay of just your relationship with those kind of groups and segments and put together a pretty quick way to at least have, you know, a, a somewhat of a campaign with your your advisors of like, hey, I'm still, or with your clients rather. Hey, I'm still here. We're paying attention to this. You know, here's some things that might have been in the news recently. Here's our, you know, quick thoughts on it and just letting them know that you're there and paying attention. So we referenced this earlier in the conversation, but you you came from some very large household name firms. What was the motivation to make the move to Helios for you personally? So I started my career, you know, 
a little bit before the global financial crisis, and it was at a relatively small firm. You know, I was there for a while, then you know, went back to graduate school and went to a bigger firms, and then a bigger firm beyond that. And so those were very eye-opening and fruitful experiences for me, and I wouldn't take them back. But at the end of the day, I knew I wanted to be in a more, in a smaller environment that I could move faster, have more ownership over the direction of the firm, and really try to kind of come in and provide value that we didn't see was being offered in the marketplace. That's what originally brought me into Helios about three years ago, and have been really happy with what we're able to do with our clients and really kind of push, or at least attempt to push the financial industry forward. And what's been the biggest surprise that you've had while working at the firm? Ooh, that's a good question. I think so. I'm involved a, a lot, you know, obviously on the research side, but also on our product side and getting our the technology and our client experience up to snuff, which is harder for a smaller firm to do. So that's been an interesting experience of, you know, how do we prioritize development? How do we get our uh, kind of development partners to kind of move in lockstep with what we're hearing from our clients while also being able to, you know, take everything that I talked about before of being an in-sourced CIO offering and make accessing our content, our deliverables even easier. So more advisors can use those. So if you're just kind of pummeling an inbox, you know, that gets tough. Everyone gets, you know, so many emails a day. So how can we kind of make that delivery better? And how can we move forward with that delivery to make our product that much more valuable? And, you know, comparing to bigger company world, like it would take, you know, we had a, a project to do kind of a basic calendaring program and that was going to take, you know, a couple million dollars and, you know, a year and a half of effort. Uh, so that was, it's, it's actually pretty surprising what you can do with smaller dollar figures if you're kind of more nimble and kind of really focused on one particular problem. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun and the work you're doing, I think is really important given the volatility. And I think Unfortunately, the the cycle we're about to enter into. I hope our listeners enjoyed the episode. If you did, please leave a review, some comments, let Jason know the, your favorite part. Jason, a question I ask folks on the show, given you're involved with this smaller company, you've got a big job position, everything going on in the world. I'm sure you've got personal issues as well. Is there something that you do daily that helps bring kind of focus or, or peace to your life? Probably not as much as I should be doing. Um, I think that's kind of a perennial statement, but I've been trying to do kind of more, I wouldn't even call it meditation because I'm not even that good at it yet, but I've been reading so much more about the benefits of that and finding kind of just time to, you know, not necessarily be present. You know, everyone's already talking about be present and you should with your family and everything else, but also like kind of taking the time and just kind of slowing down has really kind of changed you know, how I've been able to kind of deal with the stress of, of this environment and just the overall stresses that, that life throws at you. So I think kind of that's going to be a big takeaway for mine for this year. Great. Jason, if people are interested in learning more about the firm, the services you provide, your own specific work, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So our website's heliosdriven.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at, at Jason Banthio. Perfect. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for joining us today. Best of luck moving forward. Thanks um, for having me. I'm sure you'll get, it'll, it'll be an interesting ride for you in the next six, 12 months, but you're doing great work and keep it up. And I look forward to staying in touch. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.